Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Trampoline Hall podcast. I am your host, Misha Globerman. Trampoline Hall is a lecture series that takes place in a bar in Toronto and also inside of your head because of podcasts. There is one rule at Trampling Hall, which is that lecturers cannot be professionally expert on the subject on which they are speaking. It can't be their job to know about uh, their topic. Um, after the lecture, there is a question and answer period with the audience, which is a, a really big part of the show. So uh, in general, to come to Trampling Hall, you need to, you go out and you buy a ticket. Tickets are five bucks. They're usually these attractive art objects. Um, one show, what we did was uh, Sheila Hetty and the photographer Lee Toundrow had this idea that instead of going to the record store and buying a ticket, you would go to this photo studio and have your picture taken. And then Lee, we took pictures of everybody who was going to come to the show, the same people who would normally buy tickets. And then Lee took all of those individual photos and made them into a poster. And then when you came to the show, there was this big, beautiful poster with like 120 people's faces on it. And when you got to the door, instead of handing your ticket to the door person, you would just point to yourself on the poster and the door person would cross you off and then hand you a copy of the poster. So every single person at the show was sitting in the audience holding a poster with a picture of every single person at the show. I think you can see it online. You can find it on our Instagram somewhere. Anyhow, that's a little story from Trampoline Hall for your delectation. Let's get on to this week's episode. I assume it probably contains mature language. The lecture is entitled On Dentistry, and the lecturer is Michael Stacy. When I decided that I was going to come talk to you tonight about the history of dentistry, my plan was to scour the books for all of the strangest pre-modern superstitions, all of the most flamboyantly dressed charlatans and quacks, and all of the most genuinely terrifying sounding techniques for removing human teeth. My plan was that we would all have a good laugh at the sufferings of uh, the denizens of history. While I was doing this, however, I did find plenty of this strangeness. But I began to feel a little bit of moral angst about it. And I think the crux of it was that injunction that stand-up comedians are supposed to observe against punching down. You know the idea that uh, there's something unsavory about making fun of people who are already in a pretty tough spot. Well, I don't know about you, but I would consider having to live with the daily reality that my teeth might need to be ripped out without the benefit of anesthesia, a pretty tough spot. <laughs> so in light of that, we are going to talk about something very strange. We're going to talk about the strangest thing in the whole history of dentistry, the toothworm. But I thought we would try and do it. 
I thought we would try and do it in a spirit of generosity, trying to, to recognize the, the creativity and ingenuity and, and downright pluck of the people who came before us, living through some pretty unpleasant circumstances sometimes. The toothworm is exactly what it sounds like. It is the all-time pan-historical, pan-cultural, pan-global explanation for why your teeth are in terrible pain. And it's just what its name means. It's a tiny, horrible, wriggly guy who has somehow got into your mouth and is inside there chomping away at your chompers. It does not exist, but they believe it everywhere. I think it starts in ancient Egypt, people say, but it's also in the Aztecs, the Greeks, the Romans, the Mesopotamians, uh, medieval Persia, Europe, uh, medieval India and China. They all believe in the toothworm. And if you go on the internet tonight and you ask that you want someone to cure your toothworm, you will find willing helpers. <laughs> what I thought we would do is first talk about some of the things that people came up with to deal with the toothworm. Then to ask about why people would believe in the toothworm, some non-stupid reasons why people from the past <laughs> believed in this. And finally, in light of those things, I might ask you whether I could say that there was any reason for me to feel better than believing believers of the toothworm. So, what could you do about the toothworm? One of the first documents we have about the existence of the toothworm comes from ancient Mesopotamia. It's a papyrus fragment, and it shows up just right after the creation myth. So, the worm, he's not yet a toothworm. He goes to the goddessia, and he's like, goddessia, what am I supposed to eat? The goddessia says, don't worry, Mr. Worm, we've got you sorted out. I made these delicious figs, there's ripe cherries, you're going to love the world. The worm's like, no, 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 I don't want to hear any of that. What I would prefer is if you would lift me up and place me inside the mouth. There I may destroy the tooth, and particularly that soft inner part of the tooth, which is what I most favor. <laughs> Now, admittedly, this does not actually do anything for the sufferer of the toothache, but by mythologizing it in this way, I think you gain some mental purchase on the phenomenon. And if you're living in ancient Mesopotamia, I think this is an admirably hard-nosed outlook on life. The worm was offered good food. He rejects it in favor of sadism. There is no point in investigating your suffering. You merely have to face it with courage. History moves on, however. The next thing I want to tell you about is not a specific toothworm cure. It comes from Pliny the Elder, I think first century AD, Roman natural historian. But it's so good, even though it's just toothache and not toothworm, I wanted to share it anyways. Pliny says you have to go out at night and find a frog. And then, once you've caught the frog, you pry the frog's mouth open. I know that that's cruel, but the part about it that bothers me is not the cruelty, but the fact that I just think a frog's mouth is maybe not the sort of thing that's amenable to prying. <laughs> Anyways, if you succeed in this, you can shout into the frog's mouth, frog, take my toothache and go. And, and this will apparently help. The all-time best thing that anyone comes up with to deal with the toothworm is from 11th century Persia, another really famous dude, Avicenna, Aristotelian philosopher, being a man of science, his technique for getting rid of the toothworm is fumigation. You get yourself a large metal cone. At the base of the cone, you burn some henbane seeds. The smoke from the henbane seeds proceeds up the cone. You put the business end of the cone near the offending tooth, and your toothworm is kaput. 
Except what actually happens is that henbane is a truly horrifying-sounding narcotic. And if you are lucky, you are left with a case of nausea and paranoia. And if you're unlucky, I think permanent madness or death results. But in either case, you have much bigger things to worry about now than the toothworm. Now, given that those are the kind of things that you can do to get rid of a toothworm, why would otherwise rational people believe in something like this? Well, I read that the ancient Egyptians were pretty focused on the idea of parasites. This is not difficult to understand, I think. Once you have figured out that there is one kind of horrible little wriggly creature that gets inside you and messes everything up, then trying to not see similar horrible wriggly creatures everywhere would become a very difficult job. It's not entirely irrational either, right? They're arguing from something where they understand the causality to another analogous situation where they don't. I know that's not how we do science these days, but in the whole history of human attempts at knowing things, that's far from the worst. (laughs) There were, of course, cases where it seemed like there was actual physical evidence for the toothworm. In the henbane story I just described, after you'd burnt the henbane seeds, what was left over were long, white, desiccated filaments that would be shown to the toothache sufferer as evidence that the worms were now dead. There was real ocular proof that the henbane worked. (laughs) The bigger thing, I think, is that believing in the toothworm is not in and of itself evidence that you have an overall bad idea of how to do oral hygiene. So I read this paper by some anthropologists who went to very poor villages in rural Brazil. And they're trying to figure out why the villagers are going to see traditional practitioners of medicine who will, te- who will treat toothworms rather than going to dentists who will not. Um, and they ask them questions like, is there anything I can do to avoid getting the toothworm? The villagers reply, oh, of course, everyone knows that. You simply avoid eating the kinds of foods that the toothworm likes to eat. And the, the, the researchers... Uh, being a bit perplexed, I suspect, ask a follow-up question, which is, what foods does the toothworm like to eat? Which the villagers now, they just think they're dealing with the dumbest people they've ever met. Say, everyone knows that. The toothworm loves sweet, sugary treats. Well, sweet, sugary treats... That more or less exhausts 90% of the prescriptive advice that I was ever given about oral hygiene. It actually gets worse if you wanted me to explain what I thought was really going on when your teeth started to rot. In preparing for this lecture, I did learn that it has something to do with bacteria. But if I was then required to explain what bacteria were, I would look worse than the believers of the toothworm. Because... I think, more or less, that bacteria are tiny, invisible worms. <laughs> now, I do know... I do believe that there is a set of institutions which kind of guarantees that someone out there has the whole rational, testable picture of what happens in the mouth when it goes bad. But I would like to say that that knowledge is not actually instantiated in me, and that I know about as much about real dentistry as any believer in the toothworm, perhaps less. So I wonder if it's okay to stop there and just ask, maybe it would have been okay if I'd tried to just spend these few minutes laughing at the sufferings of our collective foreparents. Because, well, I might have fooled myself, I probably wouldn't have fooled all of you, and 
you would have seen that behind my laughter there was a fair bit of nervousness. That I was not, in fact, laughing from a position of strength. You see, I've never had a real toothache. My experiences at the dentist have been remarkably pleasant. And the stories that I've told you, they terrify me. There are ones yet worse which I did not have the courage to relate. If people from the past could look at me, I think they would have reason to believe that, you know, being freed from the shackles of disgustingness and suffering that the toothworm represents, I would have gone on to accomplish some pretty incredible things with my life. But I really could show them no higher ideal that I'd lived in service of than, you know, the relentless pursuit of my own comfort or the avoidance of anything resembling serious toil. I, I, don't, I don't want to romanticize the past too much because that seems like, like a worse sin, right? That I would now go and take pleasure in the suffering of these people who are dead. But I wonder whether it's even like a little bit possible for them to romanticize me. You know? I have a sixth great grandfather. I mean, I have many of them, but I've learned recently that one of them was named Nazareth. And I don't want to romanticize Nazareth, but, you know, in my mind, he looks a bit like Levon Helm. And what could he see in me other than a cowardly layabout? Can anyone feel the least bit romantic about someone who's never had a toothache? Thank you. Michael Stacy, ladies and gentlemen. Michael Stacy. You're listening to the Trampling Hall Podcast, and I'm Misha Goldman. Up next, the Q&A. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Are are there are there any questions? Oh, yes, all the way in the back. Yes, you, ma'am. Um, can, can you tell us the really gross thing? Oh, you want to hear the stuff that was too gross to make it into the lecture? Okay. All right. Okay. One of the really gross things, you know how I said there was physical evidence for the toothworm sometimes? Well, some of the other cures for the toothworm eventually involved just breaking your tooth right open. And when you do that, the soft interior part of the tooth looks very much like a scared and wriggly worm. Oh, oh, that's horrible. That really is horrible. Oh. All right, uh, thanks. Thanks for asking. Uh, any other questions? Anything else? Any other things people would like to know? Yes, yes, you, ma'am, in the back. Did you learn anything about the tooth fairy? Did you learn anything about the tooth fairy? 
strangely, histories of dentistry, perhaps, I don't know, being writ- written by dentists and not wanting to get away from the narrative of everything leading to modern dentistry, shy away from mentioning the tooth fairy very much. <laughs> Do you think they're actually hostile to the tooth fairy? Like, I, is that... I don't want to say right. that. <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't want to go there, I suppose. <laughs> All right. Uh, any other questions? Anything else you would like to know? Yeah, oh yes, yes, you remember. Does history have a greatest dentist? Does history have a greatest dentist? Hmm. I think history only has great charlatans of dentistry. There was a man in 19th century London who claimed to be able to cure toothaches by handing you a perfumed letter, which you, once in your possession, would cure your toothache. And uh, his, on his advertisements, he would give the addresses of people whom he had cured by this method. So you could go check it out. <laughs> Was that something that people would do at the time? Like, is that was that a popular advertising thing? Do you I, know? I have no idea. Like, it's like a pre-modern Yelp kind of right. thing, right? <laughs> you actually have to go to the guy's house, and he's like, four stars. Yeah. Like, okay, I go home. All right. Okay, so there you go. The, uh, the, that's the most famous dentist, the, the letter-writing dentist. Yes, yes, you, ma'am, yes. Uh, okay, what, what did you learn or imagine about the future of dentistry? Well, yeah, what about what, what, what of the future of dentistry is the question? I guess the painful parts of it will go, right? My dentist already apparently has a drill that doesn't make the unpleasant noise anymore. That really does... <laughs> people are like... <laughs> it really does put it into perspective. Like, when you think about, like, the excruciating pain that people would experience with toothache and with dentistry in the past, and that now we're at the point where, where we're like... Oh, if it didn't make that annoying noise, I guess it would be better. Yeah. Like, that's really... I, I couldn't confirm this, but I heard that sometimes they would have bands that would play while dental operations were going on. This seems like you would need to hire the dentist and a whole band of people. <laughs> it's just relentlessly unproductive. I wonder if that... I wonder if, like, in among musicians, you think that was, like, higher in the hierarchy? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a dentist band. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> we don't... I guess we don't know. Do... do so they... So they... Wait, I completely... I completely got... So, so, they, so they make the pain... They, so the future is, the, 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 is that, that the less, less noise from the pain... And is there anything else? Like, are there any other, like, future things you imagine will happen? I guess, I don't know, robot teeth. <laughs> <laughs> what, would that, what, would that, what would that mean? Like, the, they would do your chewing for you if you decided that that was sort of a task you didn't feel up to today. You are, you, you, you are ahead of the curve, like, in terms, of, in terms of avoiding arduous work. I know you mentioned that, but I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that as being, like, a, a toil... Toilet one might might oh if only I, the food could be chewed by a machine for me. Like you know how a dog, if you're playing with it, knows just how much pressure to apply to your arm without really hurting you. I do know that. Like maybe they could teach humans to know that. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? <laughs> don't humans already? Don't we already know that? Or is that a problem that you have? I, like, I don't know how, how uh, much pressure to with, apply. With every bite, you're like biting too hard. <laughs> uh, uh, all right, so in the future, there'll be less humming, your teeth will be robots, and humans will have a dog-like ability to control their jaws. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we have. Do you, do you any, anything else if you would like to know? Yes, yes, over there, yes. I'm curious, uh, you mentioned early in your lecture that there were theories or myths of the toothworm from different cultures. 
if it wasn't just the kind of the spread of the myth organically through travelers, right. why is it? So why the universality of the toothworm myth? Why do, why do so many cultures have it? Do you have, do you have a yeah. theory on that? Uh, well, I would just venture. I only heard this with about parasites with the Egyptians, but I assume parasites were something that you know that most people knew about just from trial and error, and that uh, you know, or that they're right. real, like having never had a toothache, that there really is something specific about the pain where you can feel something almost moving up there. Some of the descriptions you get do sound like people know it's a worm because of the way it feels like a worm. So people are like, huh, does anyone have that? Has anyone had a toothache and found it to be worm-like in there? <laughs> anyone here? We'll close, our, we'll close our eyes before you raise your hands. So you won't be embarrassed. <laughs> have, you, have you actually had that? Is that true? And is it true that you felt like something squirming around or something? Yeah, I, I totally believe <laughs> So that's what it feels like. You felt it and you felt... And you're, fr- you're obviously from the present day. <laughs> but you felt that... Okay, so there you go. So it does. So there we go. So it feels like. So it feels like a worm. People again. You. I guess other things. You can see that they are caused. Other things go wrong, and there's a worm inside. You see it, and then that horrible story about breaking it open, and you can see the worm inside. That's the horrible. That, that story makes me very sad. So there you go. So it's actually, it's so very reasonable. So does that answer your question? Sure. Of course it does. Anything else? Yes, you, ma'am. Yes. So I'm still trying to understand your creative process in coming to this topic with the overall general topic. Was that really the plan? But you just sort of named it this. She wanted she want to know, given that you promised us a talk on dentistry, why was this all just about this worm that doesn't exist? How did that happen? The history of dentistry is so broad with so many wonderful things in it. There, there was no way to give you a decent, in sort of ten minutes, uh, kind of uh, narrative of the whole thing, right? It, it had to be focused. Um, I, I, totally irrelevant to the history of dentistry. <laughs> well, you feel this is totally irrelevant to the history of dentistry? Well, dentistry is that your charge? What? You you say this has nothing to do with the history of dentistry? <laughs> How central is it? How well, central? Okay, so you're gonna she's gonna take back her ludicrous claim that this has nothing to do with the history of dentistry. I'll I think tell we also you, it, but how central? How central is it? It's tremendously central. There Every great dentist who they put up as the the fathers of the enlightenment of dentistry has their own personal story about how they came to not believe in the toothworm anymore. So he's not a dentist, but I think it, like uh, Van Leeuwenhoek, the microscope guy, oh, one yeah. of the, like uh, the Renaissance microscope experts. Yeah, yeah. He was one of the things he wanted to figure out was whether the toothworm was real, and so he got some toothworms from someone who removes them, put them under the microscope, and he was like, ah, no, these are just cheese worms. And so he was, you know, that was instrumental in. Kind of like our understanding that you could do stuff with microscopes. And later, the guy's name's Fauchard, Pierre Fauchard. He's considered the real, like, I don't know, 18th century master of scientific dentistry. He said he couldn't confirm that the toothworm didn't exist. Very, very like, Voltaire-like, but he had no proof that it did. <laughs> it's an enlightenment story. It's wonderful. So there you go. You, you felt bad about it, and now you feel good. Is that right? This is, that's a very successful Q&A exchange. That's how you understand things and you feel better. Does anyone else feel bad and misunderstand and want to have that problem remedied? <laughs> any, other, any other questions from the audience? Anything else people would like to know? Oh, you're over there. Yes, I'm sorry. It's so dark where you are. Yeah. That narcotic that you mentioned, does it have other uses? <laughs> you want to know more about the narcotic. <laughs> what? So far as I know, by, according to some legend... Henbane is the stuff that was put in Hamlet's dad's ear to kill him. So you can also ear poison with it. 
so, so it cures it cures non-existent diseases and kills fictional characters. Those are its, its two main its two main applications. Do you do you feel like do you think that things are different now? Do you think that that's like um, this notion? Do you think that in general people just had more like physical pain in their life in the past? Like is that a across the board thing? I mean. I think here in Toronto, it's pretty easy to avoid. I always wanted more point of pain avoidance mechanisms. Like, I feel like some sort of opiate EpiPen should be available. To <laughs> Just in case, in, in case, case something in case, bad happens. Like, if you on skin your street. knee, if you yeah. skin your knee, you're like, turn that off, turn that off, like whatever. <laughs> so, like, always, yeah. we should never have to experience any physical pain at all. Well, no, except that you might worry that you were living this thin, kind of truncated existence. Well, and that's right. So, do you think that it's? Do you, do you think it's in some ways better? Like, is it better than to have that to have that physical pain? To I have was that? thinking about this on the way over. I think 99 right. days out of 100, you would rather live in the painless world. Once in a while, there might be some benefit. What would be that day? What would be the like? I, I get. What you, I, I understand. I, like in theory, I understand what you're saying, and yet I can't imagine when you would ever choose it. Like, what I guess. The day you wanted to know you weren't a coward and you wanted some proof that you had lived through something non-cowardly. <laughs> right. right. So just that. So just to be like, oh, I'm not a coward because I had a toothache. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a start. It's, such a, it's a start. It's such a small, it's such a weak proof. But I guess it's something. It's something. Someone had their, someone with a better question than me had their hand up, I think. Did, was, uh, yes, you ma'am, yes. Uh, so I imagine you have to have a fairly complex society to have dentists. So I'm curious if you discovered anything about the types of people who treated toothaches when they did not have dentists. So the question is, who treats toothaches in societies that aren't complex enough to, to have a special dentist class, as our society does? That's a good one. I know Herodotus, the Greek historian, he was amazed at the Egyptians because they had specialization down to the point where there was one doctor just for dentists. But... I guess I assume that in sort of you know places where there was less of that division of labor going on, you had someone who was responsible for all bad painy type things, and you might address them using you know the same toolkit. But that's just idle speculation. Right. That's just the answer is doctors. Like it seems like a very obvious thing. Just doctors. Yeah, and then I guess before doctors, just like the guy, the guy who does things. <laughs> Go to the guy. Is that, does that does that answer your question? Yes, there were priests or people. Oh, if there were priests, maybe would priests would it, do they do they yeah. evolve from priests? I didn't find a whole lot of like intertwinings of religious and ceremonial roles and the getting rid of the tooth pain, which seems like really weird. You would imagine that yeah. you would just go to the same person who would help you with the tooth and then the afterlife if necessary. But those were actually separate. All those were always separate. I'm sure not always. All right. But I, okay. But that's, that's, that is surprising. It is surprising. Anything else? Anything else people want to know? Yes, uh, over there. Yes, in the back. Yes. Did you ever see any visual representations of the toothworm? Did you see visual representations of the toothworm? It's an there excellent is question. There is one very famous representation. And it's this... <laughs> it's, I think it's like a piece of jewelry or something. It's, it's a tooth that has been hollowed out. And on the interior of the tooth, there's a depiction of humans wrestling with the toothworm. <laughs> It's, it's French. It's for, I don't know, somewhere between the Renaissance and now. But uh, you can see it on the internet. <laughs> maybe, you can, maybe you can spend the rest of your, you can visual it in your mind's eye throughout the rest of the break. It seems like a nice place to wrap up. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Michael Stacy, ladies and gentlemen. Trampoline Hall was created in Toronto in the 21st century by Sheila Hetty and is hosted by me. This episode's lecture was chosen by Mark Slutsky. 
The podcast is produced by Josh Block. Our theme music was composed by Matt Smith. Trampling Hall is a sumo audio podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not leave a review or rating on iTunes? It really helps us a lot, so we appreciate it if you can do that. I'm Misha Globerman. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.